What is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. I'm your host, Ben Hilsinger, and this week's guest is Nate Wood. If you haven't heard of Nate Wood, it's okay, no judgment, but click on the little link in the show notes and watch a few videos before listening. I guarantee you haven't seen anything like some of the stuff you're about to see. Nate can do it all, and he can do it all at once. In his solo project 4, he sings, plays bass, keys, and drums all at the same time. Wow. But throughout his career, he's been involved in so many projects, including Kneebody, Wayne Krantz, George Harrison, Tigran Hamasian, Lewis Cole, Taylor Hawkins and the Coattail Riders, Sting. Incredible. It keeps going on and on. It was truly an honor talking to him, and I hope you enjoy the five records that shaped Nate Wood into the musician he is today. Cheers. do have one to start off so and this is a very important question blackened calamari burger or blackened fish tacos from taco loco oh god that's a tough that's a good question let's say calamari burger um yeah and who who's asking (laughs) our mutual friend billy moeller okay i figured and uh, i also have a follow-up question from billy he said Mm -hmm. uh you can also ask him about the drum pad that he glued to his car so he could shed his left hand while driving true story okay well um yeah i i had a minivan Uh, i had a series of minivans they were always white and they were you know dodge caravan more equivalent um the first one i had yeah there's like a little space about this big between the steering wheel column and uh the wall of the car where I glued like a piece of a, I don't know if I actually put a practice pad there. I must have because Billy has a better memory than I do. Yeah. I was just like, I'm driving this car all the time. I'm so bored. So I just worked on like, like left hand, just eighth notes and stuff like that. Uh, and then I, I totaled that car. Well, <laughs> was it I while was you were practicing? That. Yeah, exactly. It was, but it, it was my fault, but it, it was one of those things where it was like, I probably would have totaled it anyway, but that's when I stopped practicing in the car for sure. But I actually do think back on that and I think, you know what, that actually probably made a difference doing that practicing because there are certain things that my left hand can do better than they should be able to do. And I, th- I think it made a difference. I've been asking a lot of guests this, so I'm sure you've seen Nelson Drum Shop, Pro Drum Hollywood have been having their grooves of the day or just oh, yeah. filming a drummer playing. So if you go into a shop and they just say, we're just going to film you for 30 seconds, what would Nate Wood play? I don't know. It would depend on how caffeinated I was, um, kind of lunch I ate where it was in the country, what mm-hmm. the sunlight was like, totally, all of those things. So, you know, it would probably be, it really depends. Depends on what I'm working on, but, you know, it might just be like a fast drum and bass type thing, but I'm not really sure. Those are fun to watch, though, because so many people are really seem caught off guard by it, and that's what's fun about it. But then some of them are just ridiculously good, like this Steve Jordan one. That's just like, oh, my God. Yeah, he's really good. And uh, so before we get into your top five, what was the mindset? Because I know everyone has a little bit of a different plan of attack. Well, I read your email incorrectly at first, which was like name five tracks that are like the most influential on the world. Okay. You know, just but obviously from my perspective. Yeah. So I kind of started with that and then I went, oh, no, actually it says to me. So I kind of did a blend of the two. And uh, five is, you know, of course not enough. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, to me, this, right, you know, just I was trying to summarize the, you know, the drummers that were probably the most important to me throughout life, you know, including I put Stuart Copeland in there because I was such a big police fan in my early teens and he mm-hmm. was such a huge influence in my early teens. 
And then I put Tony Williams twice because I think he's the only drummer that changed the instrument twice in his life. I can't think of any other drummer who actually changed the way that the world conceives of the role of the drum set more than once in his career. And he did it at least twice. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's just hop into the first one. I do like your first perspective, though. I don't think that's uh, if you would have just kept going down that rabbit hole, I'm sure you would have had great points, too. But all right, so the album and oh, I should ask, is this in any particular order? Yeah, no order really. Okay. So the album is ESP, release year is 1965. The artist is Miles Davis. Song choice is ESP, which is the the uh, album opener, and the mm-hmm. uh, the drummer is Tony Williams. So before we play a little bit of that, take it away. Why is this one on the list? So Tony, I think that Tony, Tony and Elvin both kind of rewrote the way you play jazz. Uh, but Tony, especially, I feel like this was the first record where he's just playing the instrument in a completely new way. Like he's free from his ancestors and he's playing just like, he's playing a completely new instrument, um, for the first time on this record. I mean, he kind of did on four more and stuff too, but really on this record, it's like, this is a whole new color palette. It's a whole new orchestration. It's a whole new role that the drums do. And, uh, jazz drumming hasn't really progressed since that (laughs) i think that's kind of that's that's pretty much you know the pinnacle in a way where were you when this record was introduced to you oh uh good question i i think it was still in high school probably and it was just like oh you know yeah i like tony williams but i but then you know the more i listen to jazz and the more you know i listen to older jazz and the history and the history of drumming and stuff like that i realized more and more and more how important Tony was. Mm-hmm. Um, also, he was like, I don't know, 18 or 19 when this record came out. So he changed the instrument in his teens. That's pretty significant, I think. Yeah. Well, here we go. Here's ESP. Yeah, just the way like he plays his hi-hat and the way he plays his bass drum and he's giving like I don't know just more importance to different uh, instruments than you know other jazz drummers ever really had at this point mm-hmm. and not to mention the way that he plays the ride cymbal it just sounds more modern like yeah back then you know it's just a different approach to the feel um, and I feel like when people play jazz now that's the template you know, is that feel as opposed to, you know, what had just happened maybe five years earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, he, he's like one of those guys, like, I really think of, you know, geniuses, like the word genius. They're just kind of people who basically just seem like they were dropped off out of spaceships, like they traveled through time. And, and you're like, how did that happen then? How did they know that you could do that on an instrument? And how did they know that you could break that many rules and still do something musical? And of the time, but also of a, a new time, you know? So Tony was like that because he sounded like he was from the future. You know? mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would say that about you as well. So oh, it's, it's fun to thanks. hear you say that about Tony, but all right. So number two, <laughs> um, the album is emergency. The release year is 1969. So four years after the one we just listened to, the artist mm-hmm. is Tony Williams and uh, the mm-hmm. song choice is emergency. And of course, Tony Williams. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so this was only four years later. Um, this record came out before Bitches Brew, and that's important uh, to know. Because I, when I was, I just got into like this era of Tony, like not too long ago. 
maybe five years ago or something. But um, when I was looking back chronologically, it's like, oh, yeah, this came up before Bitches Brew. So this might be one of the first fusion records or the first one. Yeah, he was like 23 or 24 when he recorded this. But again, this drumming sounds like I think this is one of the best drum performances of all time. Like it's like it's so modern. I, I don't know what to say about it. Yeah, it's just it's 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 so modern. It's hard to believe that it was that long ago. And uh, it's the template for everything that the way that people play drums now is like, you know, this. So the way he, he changed dr- the, the approach to drums in a jazz context and then he changed the drums, you know, in a non-jazz context, too. So that's why this is cool. It's like the second time he changed the drums. This well, track. What, what was uh, what was the reasoning for the big gap between you being a teenager and listening to that that first Miles Davis record to then you said you got into this era of Tony maybe five years ago? What was yeah, the I go th- I I dip in and out of of just like listening to you know nothing but Miles Davis quintet for a few months and mm-hmm. uh, then I'll move on to another artist and stuff like that. But then you know I I was really into the. Uh, you know, like the second lifetime for a while. Cause I was really, a, I was a big Holdsworth fan, Alan Holdsworth. And that was, you know, mid seventies. And again, he sounded completely different, bigger drum set, um, different way of playing. Like the way he orchestrated around the toms, um, was kind of like a third reinvention and, uh, not, nobody's really played like that since, I mean, a lot of people have, you know, stolen a lot of elements of that, like, you know, Cobham, mm. You know all those guys, Dennis Chambers and stuff like that. But the way that Tony played melodies with toms in that era was like a you know really personal thing. But anyway, getting back to your question, I'm still haven't had enough coffee. But um, <laughs> ditto. I'm not very diligent about uh, in investigating people's whole careers. I just kind of float in and out of things that I'm listening to. But as I get older, I kind of hone in on the people that I really love, and Tony's one of those people. So I kind of just continue to dig further and further into his work, you know, like listening to even more of the eighties and nineties stuff a little bit more. So, yeah. So this record was discovered, you know, I think streaming helped with that too. Cause it's like, Oh, I can just listen to Tony's whole catalog, you know? Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. So finally getting, you know, that emergency record was like, I'd heard a lot about it, but you know, it was like, Oh, you know, I know the miles period and I know the, the new lifetime project and you know the later kind of drum solo stuff where he's just him and drums you know just drum solo but finally going back and hearing this record was like oh my gosh and that's part of why i like small kits too is this record because he was still playing a four piece with a ride and a crash and that's it and that's all he played on this record and to me it's like well this is the best drumming ever got so i don't know i don't really see a need to play like that (laughs) unless you want to get super melodic which is a, you know, it's a, it's a choice to do something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, it's hard to do that effectively, you know, and not just be like, I'm going to, I have nine toms now, so I can play a a fill that's three bars longer because I have more toms, you know, Mm -hmm. which is, that's the way that people usually use toms, but that's not the way Tony used them. He used them as like a melodic component that you could base events around, you know? Um, and there's not many people who use big kits in that kind of way. Uh, coffee's kicking in now, but I will say that one person <laughs> who does uh, that I saw recently is Marcus Gilmore. I watched a, a thing that Sonar just posted, the Sonar drums, and he's playing kind of a he's playing a double bass kit, and uh, this is a solo that they just released like four days ago. And he has like I don't know four or five toms. That's like the first video I've seen where somebody's actually. I mean, I'm sure I'm missing a, about 4,000 people, but <laughs> but where somebody's taking like a kind of a Tony concept of really treating each instrument like they're as important as each other and, you know, doing something that's really worthy of a bigger drum set. So that was a pretty incredible video because it was like, yeah, Marcus is like entering that phase where, I don't know, he's making a personal statement on a bigger drum kit that's really worthy of all those extra drums. So anyway. Well, I will drop... I will drop that in the show notes just because we're talking about it. People just go watch that after you've listened to this episode. But here is here is Emergency by Tony Williams.
It's the best drumming ever. Yeah, it still grooves. <laughs> yeah, it's the thing. There he is. Mm -hmm. But just check out like what his foot is doing. Like that's so it's so modern. It's so like okay, I understand rock and roll. Like here's how you play the bass drum, you know? Yeah. And here's how you can play the bass drum. Even the way the drums are recorded, he gets it. it's a little more blown out. You know, uh, I read that the engineer thought he was recording a jazz project. <laughs> and so he just set the levels for, you know, whatever a jazz re record would be. And then it yeah. wasn't a jazz record because nobody had ever made a record like this before. So all the mic pre's and the tape inputs are just are way overloaded. Yes, they are. Because they weren't ready. They weren't ready for this. It's also important to check out like the the whole record, but also the next track is is more backbeat based. I mean, backbeat Tony Williams is you know he's always going to be exploring, but um, it's just super funky. Like the the, the next track, um, I don't know. This this record really has kind of everything you want from drums. I think. Well, let's just play a little bit of the next track, Beyond Games. Yeah, that hi-hat. Yeah. Jeez. He must have had a little pedal in his in his minivan on the left side. He was just exactly. practicing all day. <laughs> That's the thing. Every every limb though for him. Yeah. Why don't you say what you mean? Because you didn't mean what you Not said. a lyricist, though. Sorry, Tony. <laughs> when you're aware, it's knowing that there. Uh, at least he knows how to rhyme. That's right. I mean, he's got a little bit of a Lou Reed delivery. I appreciate it. That's true. Hey, y'all. I wanted to... <laughs> I can't say. I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely. It's loud and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was gonna be or if it was gonna be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his his you know where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum, and it was it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com, just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve Six tour, and I didn't keep it and i regretted it ever since then just because i was trying to pinch pennies at the time and i just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co 
the Instagram's just at Vessel Drum Co. And check it out. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Sounds great. Bye. But all right, well, not to move on from Tony excitedly, but let's talk about another amazing drummer. So uh, the album is Googleplex. Release year mm-hmm. is pretty modern, although I guess not really mo- that modern, 2005, depressingly. Yeah. Uh, Asteroid Power Up, the song choice is Tightrope, and the drummer's DeAnthony Parks. Yeah, so I heard this record in probably 02 or 03 because uh, I was friends with Scott Brusnack, who is the guy who programmed the whole record. Mm. Billy actually went to school with uh, DeAnthony to, to Berkeley and I remember him playing me tapes of DeAnthony in like the late 90s and I was like that guy sounds like a, a robot like he mm-hmm. really just sounds like an 8-bit mach- a drum machine I can't really hear a difference so he already had his own sound in college um, completely identifiable uh, nobody really sounds like him but mm-hmm. so people were telling me that Scott was working on this record and it was like yeah DeAnthony's playing drum and bass and it's really incredible and I'm like I'm sure it is you know DeAnthony's great and everything but I just had an idea of what drum and bass was at that point, and it was drum and bass. It was like Aphex Twin or Square Pusher or Music or you know any of those like those London producers who were basically using chopped up James Brown beats. Mm-hmm. And I'd heard other drummers, you know, kind of try to do it, but they were generally just imitating those groove those beats. But this record was the first time that I heard somebody improvising at those speeds who understood that language but was using their own language, like their own sense of of how to tie ideas together but at those speeds and with that kind of precision so yeah i got i got a copy of this record before it was finished maybe oh three and i was just obsessed with it i used to listen to it all the time and play along to it all the time yeah d'antony totally changed for me like uh what was possible with this music in terms of how to apply you know your own voice to it in your own language and all that stuff and yeah i think d'antony is he's such a deep player that a lot of people miss how good he is you know like Mm. also he i don't think he ever wanted to be part of the drum scene per se because he's been good at drums for so long i think it was just kind of boring for him this is just kind of what i gather um Mm. i used to play with him a little bit in the early 2000s with this guy um keaton simons who i uh used to play in his band uh and i would play either drums bass or guitar and always sing background vocals. But when DeAnthony was in town, he lived in New York at the time, he would sometimes play with Keaton and I would play guitar, bass. So I got to know DeAnthony a little bit back then. Yeah, I got a sense that he was kind of just not really aiming for drum notoriety. That's not what he was looking for, you know. So DeAnthony was in a Nike commercial like five years ago, and I think that's more what he was aiming for. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but he's a... Yeah, exactly. But he's an extremely influential drummer that not enough people know about. But if you listen to Mark Giuliano or you listen to J.D. Beck, um, mm, yes. you'll just hear you'll hear a ton of D'Antoni yeah. in either of those people. So he's and a ton of D'Antoni in, in my playing, too. He influenced me a, a lot enormously. So, yeah, I can't imagine for you being so good at the other instruments and playing with all these incredible drummers, how much that has influenced you back on the kit. I mean, most drummers never get the option or the the opportunity to play with their favorite drummers on a separate instrument. Yeah, I mean it's a uh, it's an incredible privilege uh, that I I don't take for granted, but it it makes up such a large portion of my life that it's just kind of normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of my life to me feels kind of like Forrest Gump, but if Forrest <laughs> Gump had skill, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I, I've been I've been a part of so many things that are so outside of whatever my wheelhouse is, but I'm, my wheelhouse is very large, so it's never actually outside of my wheelhouse, but it's just, wow, how did I end up there, you know? But yeah, getting to play with all these drummers uh, is part of it, uh, for sure. It, it definitely has influenced me greatly. Because it's one thing to watch a drummer, but it's another thing to be on stage with somebody for an hour or two night after night and see how they shape a whole set or you know, how their energy is consistent or the sound they get in every room or just there's so many things. It's like you you can't get that experience unless you're on stage with them. And yeah. as a drummer, to be able to get that experience is just like amazing. It's really yeah. cool. And we'll talk about <laughs> Keith in a second. But um, yeah. is Asteroid Power Up, is that like what's the short history of that? Is that DeAnthony's band or is that just folks he found no, it's at Berkeley? Oh, yeah. So it's this guy, Scott Bruzenak who is an incredibly intelligent person who went to, you know, art school and uh, 
I'm pretty sure he he just got D'Antoni into his studio and was like, he actually he was living with that guy Keaton Simons at the time, uh, and I'm pretty sure he got D'Antoni into the studio and was like, okay, we're gonna do something in 13 at 250 BPM. Here's the click, just play. <laughs> yeah. And then he wrote something around it. That was it. And the way he wrote it was he didn't know anything about like MIDI or anything. He literally programmed every note with a with like a, a value, a hertz value. So it's like, you know, A440 and then the next note is B4, you know, 880 or whatever. And he would program it all in a MIDI line like that, you know, just like wow. numerical values of sine waves because he didn't really know about arpeggiators or any of that stuff. He just made it as hard as physically possible. And a lot of this record is microtonal. Uh, so it's a really incredible record, very heady, but, um, but really amazing compositionally. And the drumming is like some of the most astounding drumming ever because there's so much patience. Like, it's not just like, oh, I played all my licks and it's been three minutes, you know, it's like, that's kind of what most drummers would do. But this is like, this is what makes D'Antoni great. And this is what makes the dr the great drummers re truly great to me is when you peel away that first layer of like, okay, yeah, great. You can play fast for three minutes. Cool. Everybody can do that now. Mm -hmm. uh, not everybody could do that then, but they could. They can now. But once you peel that away, then what? <laughs> and then what is the part that makes it, you know, makes you great or not? And uh, D'Antoni will take, you know, a four-minute improvisation into some other space where he just lives in like a zone, a mellow triplety zone for four minutes, or like a, a really hard like grid eighth note zone, or you know, a long melodic concept that's, you know, and if you see him play his, uh, his solo project called Techno Self, where he plays keyboards and drums at the same time, which was one of the inspirations for four, for my four project. Uh, mm -hmm. if you see him play live, it's similar. Like he'll just live in kind of this quiet zone for a long time, like for 10 or 15 minutes with that kind of patience that only like great musicians have. And then he'll break out of it into this new Valley, like out of nowhere. You know, that's super energetic and big and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, that's why he's great. That's why he's he's such a great musician. But this whole record, the drumming is just astounding. And if you really think of it that way, it's just like Scott was like, hey, D'Antoni, are you free today? Can you come just record for improvisations for me? And he's like, sure. You know, and then that's what this record is. It's pretty astounding drumming. Also that this was recorded 20 years ago. So yeah. it was really ahead of its time and still... He still sounds ahead of his time. If somebody recorded this drumming now, it would sound ahead of its time. So. Hell yeah. All right, here's, here's Tightrope. is that that's awesome yeah bad right here. That was him <laughs> screwing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't a screw up, obviously. Yeah, that's a hook. 
Yeah. Incredible, also, right? Not to not to geek out on gear, but those hi hats sounded so good. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was like a like a kick drum mic, a hi hat mic, and an under snare mic, and that was it. Like a top snare mic too. But I'm pretty sure he didn't use overheads because he didn't really know what they were. Yeah, he didn't really know what they were. You know, this was like primitive Pro Tools. You know, like Digio One days. You know, when gear was really not so good. And D'Antoni just plays whatever's around. So. That was probably just a pair of like Sabian hi-hats that were just lying around. But yeah, so that track, like all these drummers, all my favorite drummers, what they have is like a patience to develop themes and variations. You know, they see, oh, this is a cool theme that I could develop develop and play off of and then discard them and move on to a new theme and then maybe bring an old theme back. You know, they have like a, a long enough musical memory to remember a theme they played like three minutes ago and be like, oh, I can return to that, you know, and mm-hmm. juxtapose it over here, kind of like the building blocks of moving development around, like compositional drumming, basically, you know, like the way you compose classical music or whatever. But DeAntoni has that, like the way Tony Williams has it too, where they, they you know, it's a long form of compositional improvisation. Mm-hmm. And you can really hear that, like, I love how you can hear his brain working and you can hear like, okay, I'm going to stay in this mode right now for a little while you know, develop this theme and then move on. And uh, that whole record is like that. It's just really amazing. Yeah, yeah. I can see him coming in just to like, can you just improv for a while on the guy in the control room just like pushing the talk back? Yeah, that'll do. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pizza's on me. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Insane. All right. So number four, the album is Greenwich Mean. Release year is 1999. The artist is Wayne Krantz. The song choice is Greenwich Mean. And the drummer is... Keith Carlock, another drummer that you've you've worked with. Yeah, take it away. So I was a huge, always been a, a huge Wayne Krantz fan. Um, I like to say, at least to myself and to other people that have played with Wayne, but I feel like Wayne has had a profound effect on drums as much as he has guitar because of the drummers that he hires and how his music is so rhythmically... Uh, uh, unique and um, compelling that it requires drummers to kind of play in a certain way. You know, like drummers can really be themselves, but you're really playing with Wayne Krantz and Wayne is kind of a drummer. Like he's a guitar player, but the way he plays guitar and the way he conceives of drums is like, it's such a strong conception. So um, I think Wayne and all the drummers that played with Wayne, well, like Zach and Keith, for instance, both were like instrumental in kind of changing the way that people play drums, um, whether they know it or not. I heard Wayne play with uh, Steely Dan in like 1995 or something. Mm. I think that was the year. And I had read like a Guitar World interview with him or, you know, like an article about him. And I was just like, man, this guy sounds awesome. And I loved Steely Dan at that time. And my parents did too. My parents are both great musicians. Like I grew up in a music household. So I was like, dad, can we go see Steely Dan? Like I really want to see this guitar player that I read about. And my dad and I were just blown away the whole time. Just Wayne was just unbelievably great but great in that he i'd never heard guitar played like that before he was playing the instrument in a completely new way it just sounded like he had a deluxe reverb turned up to 10 no pedals and he wasn't playing any of the classic solos or nodding to them in any way he was playing like completely personally and completely fresh you know so i went to best buy like the next week and bought every one of his records um first record was Dennis Chambers. That was a, God, what was that record called? Signals, I think. That was a great record, but it was more of like a fusion record, like more of like a record that you one would have heard before, even though the comp- composing was great and the guitar playing was still unique. But then by the time you got to like 1996 or so, I might be getting these years wrong. Maybe it was 93 was the first record, 95 was the second record. Uh, but Long to Be Loose was the next record that I heard, which was Zach Danziger. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is completely new music. Like this is not like instrumental music that I've ever heard before. Uh, and the drumming wasn't either. Zach sounded like, okay, he's listened to the famous fusion drummers from the 80s and 90s, but he's playing it with a wit of uh, a personal wit that I hadn't heard, you know, like in the 90s, like growing up, you know, in Southern California, it's like, yeah, everybody sounds like Dave Weckl and you just play those licks. You know, and I was really tired of it. <laughs> just like, <laughs> I want to hear like the originality of Tony Williams or something, you know, brought to this music, you know. And I felt like Zach was kind of doing that, especially when you get to um, 
to the two drink minimum record, uh, which I should have put that. I, what I really should have done is I, I should have had two drink minimum and the first track whippersnapper and then followed it by this this next Keith Carlock example. We could do that. And yeah, I think you should actually, because this was like 97 or whatever. And I it was the it was the first time I was in high school when I heard this record. and I was like, oh, OK, this is what the future of this music is. And it, it kind of points away from the Brecker brothers and this kind of smoother like oh yeah, it's like rhythm and blues and jazz and it's really polished and everybody sounds kind of like these three drummers, you know, like everybody sounds like Weckle and Vinny and Dad and Dennis Chambers, you know, and they only play that language, you know, and, uh, but this, Zach was the first time where it was like, oh no, it doesn't have to be that, it can be whatever. I really heard Zach's brain working. Again, this is the thing that I like about all of my favorite drummers is you can hear their distinct personality and you can hear... I could hear that Zach was funny before I met him. Like I could hear from this record, like, oh, Zach's hilarious and he's really smart. When I met him, it was like, oh yeah, that's actually true. He's both of those things. Yeah. So that to me, that that record, the the two drink minimum record was the was like the the peeling off of the the layers of previous drum heroes and kind of seeing a new horizon. And then when the next follow-up record was Greenwich Mean and, and it was Keith and it was like, okay, now there's like no trace of those drum heroes. And now it's like a completely new style of drumming and a new style of, of, of uh, music to me. Hell yeah. Well, here's Whippersnapper from Two Drink Minimum. Great. So clean, wow. Mm -hmm. He was like 22 or something, 23. What a bastard. Yeah, he's he's too good at the drums, too early. be really mad that I'm playing this track now but he's a much better drummer now but I'm this is talking about my influences and how I view you know um, my progress or whatever I guess so it's a selfish choice <laughs> the internet needs a new drum feud so this is good we're doing this <laughs> All right, let's go to Greenwich Mean. So this is now Keith Carlock on the drums. Mm -hmm.
is he stopping the symbol? There was like a drum and bass, almost like like glitchy thing going on. It this cool. is actually this this the way this record was done was editing. It was a okay. lot of editing. So he made a Wayne made a head. He made it like a head out of improvising. He would record every show at the fifty five bar. Both those last records were made at the fifty five bar in Manhattan. You know, with a stereo mic and uh, you know a DAT player or whatever. Uh, and he just combed through, you know, hundreds of hours of of music and just made some, things that sounded like compositions, basically out of improvisations. So wow, that's like an ed- that's like a head that he edited together, you know. And Sounds Keith's so time cool. is so ridiculous that it's really easy to edit with him because his his tempo is just insanely ridiculously strong. But yeah, when I heard this record, I was like, okay, fusion is dead. Long live fusion. Like it was like he <laughs> apparently when he was in. Um, North Texas, he sounded just like Dennis Chambers. And I've heard recordings of him, and he did. He sounded like Dennis Chambers, but like even cleaner, if that's possible. But then by the time he got to New York, he had kind of worked out, you know, he'd shed all of that stuff, you know, and he sounded like Keith Garlock. To me, I don't know, this this record was like, it felt like people were moving on from that era of drumming into like a new era. And uh, Keith is one of my all-time big influences, you know, as is Wayne and as is Tim LaFave, the bass player on that track, so... Those mm-hmm. guys are all big heroes of mine. So. Yeah, Tim was going crazy on that one. Jeez. Yeah, and that's the thing that Tim has that, again, that I love about all my favorite musicians is that they, you know, they're real-time composing and they have the patience to to trust in the compositional process and the improvisational process and uh, trust in their own um, sensibilities and not repeat themselves um, for the sake of comfort, but, you know, actually try to do something completely different every time. And Tim really has that. I've done so much touring with Tim, uh, and he's just always in an improvisational mindset. You know, if that's the gig, if it's not, if the gig is to play a baseline, he'll do it. But you know, his where he lies, where his you know his strength lies, is like he's just like a infallible improviser. And uh, he's basically like, if you listen to that record, it's like all the melodic information is coming from the bass. Anything where it's like, oh, I can sing that song, it's like you're singing the baseline. Because he's the melody maker. He's like the Paul McCartney of that band or the Charlie Hayden or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. he's kind of the secret. The melody guy is the bass player, uh, which is really unusual, especially with like electric bass and an electric improvising band. You know. Mm-hmm. So. All right. Yeah. So number five, the album is in Yada Mandata, released years 1980. The artist is The Police. The song choice is Shadows in the Rain. And yes, yeah, Stewie Copeland. So mm-hmm. where were you when this came into your life? Oh, I, I was, you know, one years old or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, my parents always had the police on in the house. Um, I think I, they gave me like a, somehow, I definitely had like a mixtape of, you know, some of the greatest hits of police stuff. But I think maybe they bought me the box set of the police when that was released in like um, 92 or 91 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was like a four disc set that was just like, you know, in this blue thing. I, re- I really remember it really well. But I mean, I've never listened to music more than I did those four records. Um, but again, what I loved about Stuart is that I could tell that he's very smart and that he was had a bright personality uh, and that he was playing drums from perspective of somebody who was intelligent and confident and had enough of an ego to uh do his own thing it sounds weird to put it this way i don't know most of my favorite players are play from that position you know like from that standpoint of um kind of intelligence and confidence um but yeah i feel like the way he plays on this track is like it's just quintessential Stewart, and there's a lot of things that he does like what i was talking about with d'antony where you can hear him like get an idea and like develop on it and then discard it, and then maybe come back to it. But he's really playing in the moment. It's not like, well, here's the part to the song, and I'm going to play it this way every time. You know, it's like he's just in the center of music, you know, painting something mm-hmm. with all of his influences, which were really unusual at the time, you know. And obviously, everybody sounds like him now. But if you imagine this just coming out of nowhere, it's pretty remarkably groundbreaking interesting and uh i got to i played guitar in taylor hawkins band coattail riders um Mm -hmm. so i got to be a part of um those uh i actually have it here on my floor my my studio is a mess but one of the posters from the forum here oh wow so i did those two um tribute shows the one in london and the one in uh, la Mm -hmm. and uh played guitar on those and stewart played and stewart played with the foo fighters and uh 
it's kind of scary watching him play because it's really I really have that feeling like this could fall apart at any moment. Like, <laughs> yeah, like honestly, and I would say this to his face. It sounded like he didn't know the police songs, like certain songs that he was playing. Like it was like, no, that's not where the hit goes, dude. The hit for everything little thing he, she does is magic. It's like, I don't that's not really how that song goes. Like he would just do weird choices in weird places, almost like he didn't know the song. But obviously he does know the song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, He knows it better than anybody. Um, but he was also just, he was just kind of scary in this way where it's like, it's really exhilarating. And everybody in the audience was like, holy crap, what is happening right now? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the thing that was so great about these uh, uh, concerts that I got to do. It was just seeing a lot of these drummers and hearing that, A, a band really is the drummer. The drummer is the band. Like, mm. Stuart is the police. Like, Sting might say he's the police, but no, it's Stuart Copeland. Like, you take Stuart out of the police, it's not the police. Yep. You you know, I don't know if you've heard those Clark Kent, if you heard that Clark Kent stuff, do you know about that stuff? No. So it's Clark Kent with two Ks. Okay. And, uh, but so Clark Kent came out in like 19, I don't know, 80, whatever, you know, early 80s. And uh, it was supposed to be Stuart incognito but it was it was Stuart playing all the instruments and singing and all that stuff and it just sounds like the police like every aspect of it is like sounds like the police it's like wow. yeah you you just substitute sting in there and you know it's actually the police but it's like all the sensibilities and the tones and the feel of the band was was Stuart but watching those shows was really like that it's like oh man what i liked about the police was yeah the songs were good but Part of it is just kind of scary because you don't really know what's going to happen. Emotionally, it feels like it could kind of derail in a way. And uh, Stuart really had that when he was playing with the Foo Fighters, too. Those guys are pros. Those guys played the crap out of those songs. But Stuart just brought that X factor. It was like, wow. And then you combine that with an intelligence. Like Stuart is such a obviously bright guy um, Mm -hmm. that it's really just fun to watch. Uh, And every, you know, both, both times he played, it was completely different. But the audience just really reacted. I also felt that way about seeing Lars play. You know, Lars gets a lot of flack for not being like a technical drummer or whatever. But dude, Lars is the sound of Metallica. 100%. (laughs) Like, put him in another context and it's like, oh, that sounds like Metallica. It's like he was playing ACDC songs and it's like, dude, it sounds like Metallica. It's like the, the way the bass drum is placed and the sound, it was so aggressive and so intense that it was just astounding like everybody in the audience was just like this is incredible you know it's like lars is actually an incredible drummer it's like it's like elvin or something like that kind of danger where you're like you're not sure if he's going to make it out alive like he might die on stage that's what (laughs) lars sounds like he could die on stage he probably will die on stage um and watching (laughs) that happen in real time is like man it's nothing short of exhilarating and uh if you say he's a bad drummer after seeing him play live, then you're kind of missing the point of music yep. entirely, I think. But Stuart and Lars both have that where it's just like they just it's just so exhilarating to watch them. But uh, I really feel like this track is uh, the drums are the loudest thing, first of all. Second of all, there's so much improvising and there's so much space and there's just it's obviously framed around the drums, you know. And also, this is the most glorious uh, has the most glorious uh, snare miss in history. Oh really? Where he, okay. he just yeah, where he's like don't, 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 like he just hits a rim, you know, and just misses. But they just left it, you know. I love that. As they should. So, All right, yeah. here is uh Shadows in the Rain.
Yeah, when I listened to this track again, I was like, I'm hanging on every note, and I like know this. I know all these performances so well, but that's what I love about Stewart is like, I just can't wait to see what he plays next. You know? Yep. Even when he's just playing a beat, it's just like there's so much like little nuance of creativity in there. This is a cool like thematic thing. Yes, such such cool com- composition right here. That's it. <laughs> yeah. But still, if you would have never told me, I would have been like another cool thing that he decided to do. Right, exactly. <laughs> Adrian Young from No Doubt does that a lot, where there's something going into the second verse he always does like a hook, like a random, really pingy snare or a da 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 da. Right. It's a, it's kind of one of his his tags he does a lot. But wow. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, that all kind of started the Stewart, I think. I mean, sure. obviously, because oh, yeah. he was like, he was the first like reggae rock guy. You know. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so much space around beat one on this on this track. You know. Beat one is like a hole every time. You know. Yep. Um, but yeah, he was kind of the first. This is great too. Well, that's your top five, technically six, because we played a few from Wayne, but mm-hmm. where can people, I mean, you're a very busy guy. So people that are listening um, want to see you live. What's what's on the horizon that you can talk about? Um, I'm about to open for Snarky Puppy with my solo project, uh, in, uh, the States. Which is four. Just four. Yeah. So, uh, that starts mid April. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's on Snarky's website or it's, you know, on my Instagram. So that's the thing that I'm doing with four. And then I'm touring a lot with Ben Wendell. Also this band now with, uh, these New York guys called Trio Grande. That's, um, I play drums and bass at the same time. And uh, Gilad Hexelman plays guitar, but he has an octave pedal on the low two strings. So if, you know, he wants, if they want me to play with two hands drums, then he can drop down and play bass and guitar at the same time. Mm. And the sax player, Will, plays sax, but then also plays keys. He's like a fantastic Rhodes piano player. So he'll sometimes play Rhodes on a track or whatever. Um, so we're all doubling up on stuff. Um so that's that's the main stuff that I have going on right now. So this is your home studio, looks like. Yeah, it's a serious mess right now. Um, but uh, yeah, it's my home studio. Beginning of the pandemic, we bought a house and uh, we had you know a year and a half or whatever to to make it happen. So I got a long time to kind of dial in this basement studio. But it's way bigger than I ever thought I would have for something like this. So I'm really stoked. And you do a lot of mastering and stuff down there, right? Yeah, that's how I make all my money. Uh, <laughs> I, this, yeah, it's at this point, music is like my my side hustle. But yeah, I do a lot of mastering down here. But this is it's a big space. I actually realized it's big enough that I could actually put like two kits in here if I wanted to, which is kind of nuts. Like I could have. Oh wow! So are we gonna have a Keith Carlock, uh, Nate Wood double drum album coming out pretty soon? <laughs> yeah. You know, you, to you be honest, here, folks, uh, I'm really not interested. I'm not interested in the drums anymore. It's weird saying that on a drum podcast, but I'm not like interested in like kind of what can I do next as a drummer? <laughs> I'm just not interested. And that's a, it's a horrible place to, to, to be. Um, but uh, I really hear drums as part of like, I want to be part of, you know, projects that I'm a part of. And uh, I'm really want to just do this multi instrumental thing more because I feel like, it's new it's a new thing you know a lot of times when i'm playing drums i'm hearing bass notes you know i'm hearing like oh god i wish i could hear this substitution right now but now i can now i can play that substitution you know or you know i'm I'm a lot of i'm just hearing a lot of things that can be happening at once like when i was playing drums so now that i can technically do those things it's a certain kind of freedom that i always wanted so i hope that 
that project gets successful enough, you know, whether it be 20 years from now or whatever, that I can do it more because it's, there's nothing like it when it's working. It's just a really great feeling. And it, it uses more of my brain at once than drums ever did. Especially now when I go back to play just drums, even if I'm playing really hard music, it's like, this just doesn't use as much CPU as it used to. And that doesn't mean that I even consider myself a good drummer at all. I'm just saying, you know, the brain is a muscle and uh, I have stretched it in ways that maybe not many drummers have before me because I've never seen somebody play this many instruments at once in a concentrated way. I feel like I'm, I hate talking about myself this way, but you asked, so or you <laughs> didn't did. even ask. You didn't even ask, but you just said, is there I'll put it in would keep I'll just do a, uh, overdub yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the drums is a young instrument. It's like only really a hundred years old, but mm -hmm. playing four instruments at once is even younger. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just more interesting to me or even two, even two, even like playing the Trio Grande or uh, I've also playing drums and bass at the same time in knee body. It's, it's really fun. It's like, there's definitely things that you miss by not being able to play with all the limbs, but this is the analogy I thought of, which is that like, okay, the drum set is only 100 years old, right? But imagine the first time that somebody took the took away the roles of everybody who had to play the individual instruments, you know, like of a drum kit, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like it used to be just a bass drummer, a guy who played the bass drum or a girl who played the bass drum and a guy or a girl who played the snare drum and a guy or a girl who played cymbals and you put them all together and that's a groove, you know? And then yeah. somebody was like, I'm going to play them all at the same time and take your job. <laughs> and I'm sure there were a lot of people who were like, yeah, but it's not going to have the same feel as a bunch of people playing together at the same time. And it's like, of course it's not. It's a different instrument, you know? Sure. <laughs> only now, only like 50 years later where it's like, oh, no, that's the instrument now. It's a drum kit, you know? It's not people playing individual drums, you know? Mm -hmm. And you forgot about, you know, the, the possibilities of a bunch of people playing a bunch of instruments at the same time. It's like, it became an instrument. So... I think of four as the same thing. It's like, no, it's like, it's a different thing. You know, it's not like, oh, but you're losing what you can do on a drum kit is with four limbs. It's like, no, you're gaining the melodic component of being able to play a bunch of instruments at the same time, which is going to lead to music that you've never heard before. Hopefully. I mean, people are going to start doing this more and more. You know, this is just obviously just the beginning of this, you know, so it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. But anyway, so that's where I'm at. That being said, I do practice, you know, uh, a fair amount i do i do get on the kit it's like my uh it's my home you know mm -hmm. drums is my home so uh it's kind of a meditation if nothing else you know it's like a way to center spiritually or whatever yep and there's all there's obviously a lot of things that i want to get to on the kit uh for me you know i don't really care if people hear it or not but there's a lot of things that i want to do um on the kit still you know uh i have a lot of goals with just the drums but uh Professionally, it's not as exciting as it once was, even though I love doing it. I don't want to diss. I, I don't want to sound. I don't know. I'm probably regret that I will say that, but I actually don't regret anything ever. So, no, I, anyway. I, I totally get where you're coming <laughs> from. And like, you have to just assess. I mean, I, I think it's refreshing that you're being honest about taking self inventory of like where you're at right now. A lot of people, it's scary to be like, oh my God, do I not like drums as much as I, I've invested so much of my life in this and now I can't admit to myself that it doesn't bring me the same enjoyment. So I'm, I'm happy for you that you've allowed yourself to get to the point. That's awesome. You know what else too? It's also that I've played with a lot of my favorite people, a lot of my heroes, uh, and I've met a lot of my heroes and I feel like I kind of did it, you know, in a way mm -hmm. like, you know, a lot of the people that I really look up to, I've gotten to play with um, or get to know or whatever. So it feels like uh, I accomplished that goal in a way, you know. And then a lot of people have a goal of making it really lucrative or playing with huge artists or whatever. But none of that is really interesting to me um, because getting back to my friend Billy Moeller, like we were in a huge band when I was I was 21 and he was 20, I don't know, seven or whatever. But, you know, I, I played for 100,000 people when I was 22. You know, like I'd already done the huge audience thing, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, I returned to that for these Foo Fighters shows. And it was like, yeah, I don't need that. I never, you know, that was never a goal of mine. And it was good to do it uh, again because uh, it felt the way it felt before, which is like, yeah, I don't really relate to this as much as I do, like playing the 55 bar or something, you know, it's like uh, or playing a four show or whatever. So, uh, yeah, anyway, I'm in other words, I'm, I'm really... I'm pretty happy with how things are going. 
Nate Wood yep. is happy, and so am I, that I got to talk to you, man. It's it was you are an incredible musician. I it's oh, I, it really is an honor to talk to you, man, and get some insight. I am so excited to see what you do next, and uh, thanks again for hanging out. I really appreciate it. Awesome, thank you. All right, cheers, dude. Okay. And that's the show. If you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, so it'll get bigger and better, and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'll be an OG listener that can brag to all your friends. Anyways, why don't you go and check us out at BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on all the socials. Just search for Big Fat Snare Drum and you will find us. The show is edited in part using Isotope RX Audio Editor. It's amazing, so go check that out at Isotope.com. And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye.